welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Welcome back to What on Earth, the podcast that asks the big question, what on earth is going on as Australia and the world transitions to the post-carbon world? Each episode, Tenet, Paul and I look at the big issues facing businesses in Australia. We look at it from different angles and try to find clarity in the chaos. We look at what's happening under the earth, above the earth, in Australia and around the world. My name is James Scotland. I'm the General Manager of Supply Chains for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me as always is my colleague, Tenet Reid, the Senior Policy Advisor for Energy and Environment at Australian Industry Group. And Paul Hodson, the well-respected industry commentator, board member, and chief executive, with a special focus on innovation and change. Hello, Tenet. G'day. Good to be coming to you from beneath a blanket fort for audio reasons. That creates an interesting visual image in our minds. And hello, Paul. Are you are you sort of under a blanket somewhere? No, I'm not. Although it is quite cold by Brisbane standards, James. So, but uh, great to be with you again. We know how cold it gets in Brisbane. Oh, you poor things. Well, hey, look, there's a lot to talk about uh, in the energy and transition part of the world um, and what it means for Australian businesses. So let's talk about uh, that this, this episode. Let's look at all the different energy sources that might be of use to us as business people. I guess most people can read the news and can hear the news, Tenet, but this Give us a quick update with what's been happening in what has been called the energy crisis. How are Australian businesses likely to fare uh, in the short term ahead? So I would say that at the moment we're just exiting a really acutely dramatic phase of that crisis, but actually... Uh, things are, are not really in a good way and the costs of that are going to be hitting home for more and more of us. So the period where a quarter of the total coal generation fleet was unavailable in the midst of a cold snap, that's coming to an end. Um, broken and, and otherwise unavailable units are, are, are coming back. The briefly suspended market is restored to quote-unquote normal operation, but prices are really high and they're probably going to stay much higher than usual for a long time. The futures market uh, is suggesting, well, it's it's showing that uh, wholesale electricity prices are going to be well above the levels of the last few years for the next several years. And uh, most energy users aren't exposed to spot price movements in the short term, but as they come out of their electricity and gas contracts, they're going to find significantly higher prices. So I I did some dodgy back-of-the-spreadsheet numbers uh, and plausibly the costs of this um, emergency period where the market operator took control uh, of, of all generation and said what dispatches when, suspended the market. Costs of that might pencil out to about $80 a head for everybody in the eastern half of the country. But the costs of a year of the less dramatic but still much higher than usual prices that we're facing just on electricity would be more like $800 per head. So the drama 
uh, may be a little lower, the costs cumulatively are going to be a lot higher. So we're expecting supply to be okay for for our businesses, but we're going to take a a cost hit. That's right, because uh, the broadly because the costs of black coal and natural gas are very high on international markets. Uh, and our local energy systems are very exposed to those international pressures. So it's absolutely possible that a bunch more things will go wrong at once, a bunch of generators will break. Uh, Like that could happen, it just did. But if everything goes okay, more or less, we're still going to be paying through the nose. Yeah, perhaps you can explain it to us. Uh, explain it to me. I, I keep hearing how uh, we should be, uh, you know, firing up the coal-fired, coal-fired power stations here and around the world, and yet they keep breaking down, don't they? They're old and they're they're not as reliable as they used to be. Is that right? And and Paul, you might want to hop in and talk about what's happening around the world as well. Well, there's just just quickly. There's there's a bunch of different things that have gone wrong at the same time uh, this winter. So you've had uh, electrical faults at uh, major power stations. You've had floods uh, affect um, the actual mines uh, that uh, they get their fuel from. You've had logistical problems prevent uh, coal from getting uh, from mines to power stations. Uh, you've had uh, plants taken down for uh, maintenance. And so um, usually you would expect that a, um, a power plant operating as baseload would operate like on average 70% plus of the time, maybe, maybe more than that. Um, and what we've had is the coincidence of a lot of different problems at once. And that's been uh, a, an enormous challenge. And it's... Um, it's very different in detail, but maybe similar enough in effect to a problem that we might have more and more of um, in the future of uh, rare periods of low renewables output. Uh, if you have a, a, a few very still days during uh, a time of the year when there's not much sunshine, uh, and you've got a lot less generation than usual, that's uh, that's an unusual low probability circumstance that's uh, comparable uh, in like how do you deal with it uh, to a quarter of your coal fleet conking out at once. Paul, any, any thoughts on what's um, what's been going on? How are the renewables been holding up? Um, look, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things is that in, in a... In an energy transition, which is going to be decades long, um, I think um, there is a bit of a perfect storm at the moment, a lot of short-term issues that uh, tenants uh, mentioned. But I also think it's perhaps we just don't have a properly nationally coordinated energy transition plan so that we can go, well, this is where we're at on the path. You know, we can foresee some of these things. We can be making the investments. We can be doing things on that path. And at the moment, there still seems to be a lot of people going, well, actually, we, this is why we need to build more coal-fired power stations, or this is why we need to be doing this or doing that. And it sounds like we don't really have much of a plan um, for how this... And, then, and I think that uncertainty doesn't help when you've got short-term issues as well, um, you know, such as floods 
such as uh, uh, kind of breakdowns of, uh, of, of areas and, and also what's happening internationally as well around gas and coal prices. Um, so, so I think I think it's a, a real perfect storm, really. But but things on the way transition through are always going to be tough. Um, and I think there needs to be some honesty around what that toughness looks like. But I think having a having a, a more secure goal, less uncertainty, because you know everyone's kind of shrugging their shoulders and making you know investments or making decisions on the fly um, doesn't help either. It has been the point for many years, hasn't it? The business has been asking for certainty. Just give us a framework in which we can start building our, our future. And it was interesting that ESG came in ahead of, the, ahead of governments. Uh, anything to add, uh, Tenet, before we move, move, <laughs> before we move on? <laughs> well, just that uh, we do need a plan. And the, the best one that we've got to go on at the moment is the integrated system plan that the the final version for 2022 was uh, just released a few days ago. Uh, So this is the energy market operator's effort to uh, chart what resources, what what generation, what uh, storage, what transmission, very crucially, uh, we would need to meet our needs over the next few decades. And they... um, like there's a lot in that document, but uh, it really doubles down on the expectation uh, as the central case for that that plan that uh, old coal is going to retire a lot faster than we used to think, uh, and that it's really really urgent. Like they uh, they do everything but crack out the underlines and the bold and the double uh, exclamation marks to say how urgent it is to make progress on the uh, replacement infrastructure, uh, especially the transmission lines, uh, to um, to be ready for these closures that are coming very fast. We've we've just experienced what it's like when uh, a bunch of your coal, uh, old coal generation is not available when you're not ready for it. Uh, if we are ready for it, we should be fine, but we, we don't actually have that long to get ready for a lot of these generators to go. Yeah, I wasn't going to go there, but it's worth going, Paul. No, I was going to say, the, but, but like the coal-fired power stations, we don't actually have fixed dates when they're going to close, do we? So we're it's still no. open to the owners of those to make decisions independently of the system based on their own kind of, I guess, balance sheet, profit and loss, operating conditions, market strategy. Yeah. And, and it'd be really handy in that integrated systems plan if you actually had dates that you actually knew you had to replace by potentially decades out. So currently, uh, the plant operators are obliged to give three and a half years' notice, but uh, that's that's not a completely ironclad uh, requirement, particularly if a, if an operator just intends to like get out of the market, the Australian market altogether. So you're right; there's there's only so much certainty, and you know the the. Uh, projections that um, the market operator puts into this central scenario are just that projections. They are, there's nothing forcing uh, that uh, scenario to come about in that way, and it, it does create uh, or, or leave uh, some um, some uncertainty for everybody else to deal with. 
I, I see there are signs of a national national plan. Though. I think the new government has started to make announcements about electric vehicles. Uh, uh, the uh, the European have made some strong uh, rules around, I think, 2035, stopping um, internal combustion engines by 2035. That's right. Like Britain by 2030. Uh, and the Australian uh, car operators, including the Volkswagen, which is a European brand, of course. I think about Chinese now. Uh, anyway, they've, they've said we need to have standards in Australia because otherwise we are going to be the dumping ground of all those all those internal combustion engines and we're going to be behind on trying to get reach our carbon our carbon targets. This is important for Australia, uh, Australian business, isn't it? We need to know what's going on in all these areas so that we can plan ahead. Well, and um, transport is both uh, an incredibly important part of um, nearly every business, um, uh, but also uh, an important part of our um, business emissions profiles. And so uh, those who are looking at um, how do they achieve their net zero goals, um, they, they will have made significant progress on electricity. They'd have high hopes that uh, that will uh, get better and better over time. Uh, and attention for, for more and more is starting to turn to how, how do they address the, the transport piece of that. Uh, and, um, you know, EVs may not be the answer to everything, but it's pretty clear they're going to be a very big deal. Uh, and uh, it is hard to get one in Australia. Um, it is, uh, the, you know, we've got a lot of pieces to put in place there. Uh, on the standards front, um, you know, the, the previous government flirted with standards, ultimately put that uh, that emissions and, and fuel efficiency standards idea uh, aside pretty, pretty definitively. The current government didn't promise it at the election, but they also didn't promise never to do it. And uh, there are um, plenty of voices saying that they should reconsider that, including, um, you're right, the, the vehicle suppliers themselves. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. Uh, and there's a lot in that plan that Paul spoke about. But bit by bit, we're starting to see some, uh, you know, some signs that the new government may or will address them. Yes, Paul, um, thoughts? Yeah, and I was just going to say, I mean, bit by bit, it's good, but it's actually the whole integrated part of it's so important. So as Tennant says, it's really hard to get an EV in Australia. But if if there was a national coordinated strategy to actually say, well, by 2030, we want a million electric vehicles on the road in Australia, and then you can actually start modelling how much electricity you'd require, um, how many charging stations you require, how many cars you'd require, how you would incentivise getting those cars here, whether you could actually, by having large targets, you could, you could, you could incentivise local assembly in Australia or manufacturing of some parts, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, all, all of those things, I think, need to be put together. And the, the challenge often we see is, is small projects, small policies, small programs that sometimes don't all join up very well. Um, and, uh, and it's kind of putting some of those certainties and, and getting governments, I guess, to be bold and to shape industry. Um, uh, which I think brings certainty with it as well. I, th- I think there's some movement on the way. I understand that they either have or they are about to announce a policy uh, or a target of 3.8 uh, million vehicles, EVs in Australia by 2030 
and 100,000 new charging facilities with charging facilities no more than 150 kilometres apart. So that's starting to get quite specific. Uh, but let's come back to EVs at a, at a, at a, a future podcast because that's going to be an issue for businesses. One of our, uh, one of our listeners has uh, written to me and asked uh, the uh, rather small question of why don't we have nuclear power in Australia or why aren't we going that way? She said we have uranium uh, and a power need, so, so why not nuclear? I responded to her saying, I think there's three reasons. One, it's just take too long to build the nuclear reactors. It's not a, a short-term solution. Secondly, there's no nuclear industry at all here in Australia. It'd take forever to try and develop a large, well-credentialed workforce. Uh, and thirdly, there's not really any political will for it. The last thing we need probably is is more waste in, in our energy systems, as in, you know, nuclear waste at the end of the uh, the process. What about you guys? What would you have said? Do you think we will get to a nuclear industry? Do you want to, get, you want to take this, uh, this very easy question yeah, look, first, I, Paul? Um, look, I, I don't know. I, you know, people say about it, it would take a long time, but um, a lot of these things are going to take a long time. We talked before about the energy transition is going to be decades. Um, and yes, we do have a lot of uranium. Um, there are new technologies coming, but there are a lot of obstacles to it. Um, and I don't know, I don't think public perception is really there supporting it um, in any big way. Um, and there are a lot of... Would, would uh, it qualify as renewable uh, energy though, Paul? It's not, it's not really renewable, is it? Well, it's not really renewable. Um, it's, 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 you know, you, you dig up uranium or, or thorium or, or whatever you might, might use in the nuclear cycle in the future. Um, uh, but it's, it's, you know, generally a clean technology. Um, I'll have a lot of people writing in on that one, yeah. um, but uh, compared to renewables, but it's, uh, it, it is emission free. Um, it obviously has a whole range of issues with it as well, but um, um, I'm, not, I'm not completely opposed to nuclear. Um, but I think, again, going back to, well, what is Astra? What are we going to do? Um, mm. um, I still think there is the fact that uh, in the middle of all these things, we still have all these questions being popped, you know, popped um, is a is a challenge. I think I think it, it it kind of would be much better to have something which is a little bit set out. You know, um, uh, in any change process, it's going to be difficult, and it's only more difficult if it's very uncertain and ambiguous on the way through, or more am- uncertain and ambiguous than it needs to be. There's an energy cost to extracting the uranium. Uh, tenant, but that would be the same for any critical minerals going into the future. Yeah, so um, I think th- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of politics and and public sentiment and perception uh, and and political caution uh, that is associated with why we don't have a nuclear power industry here. Um, but what I'm going to focus on more is uh, the economics because. Uh, it unless something changes quite dramatically, it just doesn't look as if if all the politics went away, it would be particularly attractive to have a nuclear power sector within Australia. So the the economics of nuclear are like they're all about capital cost. The fuel cost uh, pencils out to close enough to nothing. The running cost pencils out to close enough to nothing. 
and even the decommissioning costs, which like in absolute terms are significant, um, but if you look at the total levelized cost of uh, all the power that a nuclear power station would produce over its lifetime, uh, and then um, you know you, you you account for the decommissioning costs over that whole span, then the magic of discount rates means that they don't really the decommissioning costs barely have an impact on the the total levelized cost either. It's really 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 the cost of building the thing in the first place that uh, is what it's all about. And there's two problems with that. One is that those construction costs are very high, uh, the, like construction and finance and, and everything involved in just getting the, the power station into existence are very, very high. Um, and the second thing is that that combination of um, uh, very high uh, construction costs and, and and the other costs being low makes nuclear power stations very vulnerable uh, to being economically disrupted by other power sources, like especially renewables, but in the United States actually cheap uh, gas uh, generation has buggered up the economics of existing nuclear power stations, which have been closing um in in the US um and so the, like the issue is if you've got a really high capital cost you want to be running that power station all the time or as close to all the time as you can get it to have the lowest cost per unit of energy uh, but if a bunch of zero short run marginal cost uh renewables are coming in whenever it's sunny whenever it's windy then the power market that you nuclear generator want to be selling into is getting hollowed out uh, and you probably have a much higher um cost that you need to recover anyway even if you are running flat out but if you're having to bid low or negative just to get dispatched because there's so much other power sloshing around your economics just go into the toilet uh, very rapidly so now there are hopes that uh, new generations of um, small modular reactors will have you know much more manufacturability um, it, it's not a, a massive mega saga construction project every time you do one of these things you just get them out get them off a truck from the factory and stick them in in a, a standardized site and and away you go that's the hope um and like let's see let's see how the the first few of these that are being contracted for and and maybe delivered sometime in the next decade or so overseas let's see how they go um at this stage like i honestly couldn't tell you if um if those hopes are going to be realized or not it's really good it's really good point though that that you we tend to think that all these energy sources are like for like and it's just Choosing whichever one is the best, best one for the future. But there's economic models attached to this that nuclear may or may not be a good economic model. Yeah, and and it does it does really depend on the context because like the um, the value of an additional megawatt of solar electricity is very different. Uh, between a market where there's no solar and a market where 50% of the energy is coming from solar uh, because you're getting that incremental megawatt hour um, at the same time as 
very likely as all the other solar megawatt hours. Um, and so the, the the costs of firming uh, um, a highly renewable energy system do escalate as you approach one hundred percent. Um, and and so there there is value in clean, firm, dispatchable energy sources uh, in in a, a, a system that's got a lot of renewables in it. So a lot of nuclear people put their hopes in that. Um, I've seen some draft results from a, a big ambitious modelling exercise for Australia's net zero, which. Uh, let nuclear play around in the in the model. Like nuclear was an option, and the model didn't pick it because the economics look bad even in net zero land. Here, here, Australia's got a very different context to other places. Paul, uh, yeah, look, I and I, I think it's one of those strategic decisions as well to sort of go well. You know, if we were going to go nuclear, we wouldn't be building one nuclear power station. We'd be building a number of them. We'd be building an industry um, and there'd be scaling benefits of doing that as well. But there'd be signals as well around investment and skilling and supply chain and everything else that, that happens off the back of that. And the other thing that often you know goes missing as well is that our, our domestic energy consumption is quite small compared to our export. And we already export mm. quite a bit of uranium oxide um, and, uh, you know, that so, so it's um, you know building nuclear power stations in Australia is not going to help the export side of things potentially unless we're doing I think it's pink hydrogen is that right, tenant um, um, off the I back think of that's nuclear. Right. Pink, pink <laughs> piece of the rainbow. Yes. Um, um, but so so it's again these are strategic decisions. You know what what are we going to what are we going to what are we going to be famous for? What what makes strategic sense for Australia given? Our footprint, our and our future industry needs and and vision. Um, what do we What do we actually want to invest in? And I think there's still too much uncertainty across that, and no one really leading properly on on how that comes together. Well, I just want one the, more thing this... on the economics. Just one more <laughs> okay, thing on the economics, yeah. which is that uh, the United Kingdom is building a new nuclear power station, uh, the Unit C at Hinkley Point. And to get that power station built, they had to offer them a a contract that guaranteed them an electricity price at which they could be viable. And that electricity price uh, started out at uh, £93.50 per megawatt hour, which uh, is around uh, $160 Australian dollars a megawatt hour, guaranteed plus inflation, um, for uh, what is it, twenty years uh, or, or, or more? That's a high price. That's a very high price, um, and uh, we've got to do better than that if nuclear actually is going to have a future in a place with as many energy choices as Australia has. Well, one hundred and sixty megawatt hours for nuclear is a great segue to what I wanted to ask you about next, which is hydroelectric. I read a report recently that said electricity generation from hydroelectric was 15% of all global generation at a cost of $64 per megawatt hour compared to wind generation, 6% of total global energy uh, generation, 38 megawatt hours, and solar at 36. So hydro, uh, sorry, nuclear 160, um, hydroelectric 64 wind generation 38. Now, they may not be exactly right because I'm not totally sure they're Australian dollars, but 
let's assume that there is that kind of split between the costs. Um, that was suggested as wind solar hit their um, hit their economy of scales, the cost will come down even further. They're already cheap. It'll come down even further. But I want to what I wanted to ask you about is is what's happening with the Snow River River Two hydroelectric scheme. I seem to remember they're saying three thousand three million houses uh, will be will be powered by by the Snowy River. Is that sort of right? Where are we up to with the Snow River? Well, Snowy Snowy two point zero, uh, which um, is is a a, a name of its time, and, and I, I'm not sure if they'll still be calling it Snowy 2.0. Very, very uh, funky, isn't it? Hip, 30 years' time. Uh, but it is a big deal. Um, it is a mega, mega project that would play a huge role uh, once it's built. Um, but unfortunately, we have we have recently heard uh, that it's running about 18 months behind at this stage, although the, the transmission lines to actually connect it up so that it could um, offer its full capability to the market. Those haven't been approved yet, uh, so those were already going to be a, a constraint on when it can it can help out. But it's a, it's a very big project for energy storage uh, to serve as a, a, a great big battery that can run for, for quite a long time uh, at up to two gigawatts of, um, of peak output. Uh, but yeah. it's running a bit late. So when 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 are we expected to see some of this power? Is it twenty twenty five or way beyond that? Uh, if everything goes right at this point on both the the construction uh, of the the pumped hydro itself, where you know which is a a very challenging engineering exercise, like drilling um, enormous tunnels through uh, long stretches of solid rock. Um, operating in a, a sensitive uh, national park region, uh, like it, it is hard what they're doing. But if nothing else goes wrong with that, and the transmission is approved, and the transmission, which will also run through uh, areas that people feel very sensitive about, if that's all delivered on time, fingers crossed, then uh, we will have the the full capability. Uh, available to the market around 2028. Okay, so that's not too far away. Uh, is it the only one? Is there any other possibility of of hydroelectric in in, in Australia? There's there's oh. quite a, quite a few, a lot smaller projects um, around. There's the Kidston project in uh, North Queensland. There's a number, I think, in Victoria as well, and and a, and a, a number of other smaller ones around. A lot of um, I think the Queensland government's got a, a scouting around. Uh, I think they put thirty-two million dollars into scout a new hydroelectric uh, project. And, and I guess you you were talking about comparing them with wind and solar and pricing, James. And I think in some ways uh, they're a different proposition because they really had a lot of the storage. So if it's sixty-four dollars a megawatt hour, and they actually add the storage component to wind and solar, um, then potentially that's not a bad outcome in the overall scheme of things mm-hmm. i would have thought um but that's i, I was uh, fortunate last year to be down um having a look uh, uh, in at the plans of snowy 2.0 down there and uh yeah it's something like 40 something kilometers of water and access tunnels 
um, as as Tennant said, through solid rock in a national park. Um, uh, it was always looking overly ambitious to meet those initial targets, I would have thought. Yeah, I think there's two two dams, isn't there? And they're going to put the the water from the two dams through through the mountains into an underground electric generation. Like it's a big it's a big big project, whichever way you look at it. Yeah. So when the sun's down uh, or the the wind is still, um, the water will be let out from the upper dam um, through the generators and the tunnels down to the lower dam to generate uh, a lot of uh, a lot of power. And then when the sun's up and the wind's blowing and power is cheap, uh, they'll uh, buy a lot of power to pump uh, the water back up from the lower dam to the higher dam so that they're ready to go the next time they're needed. And you lose quite a bit of energy in the process, but you create a lot of value in the process because a megawatt hour uh, at noon is worth a lot less than a megawatt hour at 5.30pm when everybody's turning on their appliances. There's there's an interesting development uh, overseas in Norway where a Norwegian firm called Wind Capture Systems um, is promoting a wind turbine concept to replace the traditional blade concept of offshore wind farm. It says its turbine design is more effective and, it, and, and the, the turbine is, is captures wind from all different angles. It can sit on an oil rig, doesn't have to be secured to the uh, – it doesn't have to be anchored to the, the seabed. And they reckon that uh, to reach Norway's target of 30 gigawatts, I think, of offshore wind by 2040 – uh, instead of needing 2,000 bladed floating windmills, they can do it with only 400. The commentators of this say that there's just a plethora of innovations and it's making it difficult to find the lowest cost options. Both of you guys have been involved in sort of hearing lots of different options at various times and innovations and economic development. Is it good to have a lot of options or is it, is it, is it, does it make it exponentially more complex? How do we, where, where do we go with this? So, um, oh, you go, Paul. Look, I think it's good to have options um, and, and there'll always be people trying to either incrementally or, or, or really transform a sector. Um, so, so I think that, hap- that happens and you have to, you can't always be waiting for the next best thing, right? So you have to be making decisions about what you're investing in now um, I, I have seen some of that technology and, and some of that technology often doesn't scale. Um, I'm not talking specifically about that, um, but also sometimes the economics um, don't, don't stack up either. Um, but certainly options and innovation is something we need to be stimulating more of at those early stages. But at some point you do need to make decisions about what you're actually investing in, otherwise you end up uh, just with a with a buffet of ideas and and nothing really nothing really to drive forward. We do see um, in previous episodes where um, new energy technologies have or, or, or new ways of doing uh, an energy technology have tried to uh, challenge the the incumbents. Uh, like a lot of them fail, uh, and in in the um, renewables space. You know, uh, ten years ago, or, or, or twelve years ago, there were efforts to uh, promote 
um, new solar technologies that were going to um, address the, the the roadblocks that were facing silicon crystal and PV because silicon was at the time quite expensive. Uh, there were concerns that there wouldn't be enough supply. And so if you could do thin film solar, if you could do uh, new novel geometries of solar, uh, you could have a, a great advantage over the incumbent technology or the, the biggest technology and, and get ahead. And what happened was that the boring established incumbent technology uh, solved its supply chain problems and just kept incrementally getting better uh, kept learning uh, how to do the same thing cheaper and faster and better, uh, got more momentum and a lot of technologies that were gunning for uh, that crystal and silicon PV uh, didn't really go anywhere. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but there, uh, it, it is easy to overestimate the, um, the impact that revolutionary advances can have versus just doing the same thing better and bigger and um, then creating a moving target for the, the cost that you need to get a new technology at to be competitive with the, uh, the boring one. And so we're seeing that happen. You know, it has happened with solar. Um, we're seeing it happen with lithium-ion batteries where there's so much energy storage innovation out there all kinds of amazing chemistries and configurations and technologies. Um, but meanwhile, lithium ion is just, it's got just got so much momentum and so much supply chain being built around it uh, that for, for some niches at least, I think it's over. There's, there's plenty of, um, of contexts for storage and, and uh, uses for storage where lithium ion isn't great and other, other technologies are going to have um, a, a shot, but um, lithium ion is going to be boring but big. But we've seen this before, haven't we, just to be argumentative, where good ideas have been swamped by existing forces. Uh, you know, I, I remember hearing a podcast ages ago about electric vehicles were around back in the 1930s or something. Um, I think it was 1930s, and they got swamped by the by the fuel producers, basically. Uh, and then other good ideas have been have, have gone by the wayside because of you know the power of existing forces. How do we make sure we get the right answer this time? We just got to give it a go. I think <laughs> we, um, we, we trust in the goodness of man, of you, you know, humankind. <laughs> We do need to remain open to surprises and to like to design policies that um, support um, a range of technologies if they can, you know, show their work. If they can demonstrate good results, um, to be able to to be allowed to compete, um, that's uh, that's a sensible way to go. But um, we also have to like recognize success and and build on it and we're having a lot of success with um with wind and solar and batteries pumped hydro is well established but we haven't done any lately in this country until this these last couple of um or current couple of projects um for things like uh, new generation uh, nuclear fission proposals for nuclear fusion like there's lots of exciting things but they may not come to anything 
we have in this conversation highlighted the fact that there's always an economic model attached to it. We hear a lot of the political arguments and the the, the social arguments on 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 normal media, but this is an opportunity to talk about the, the economic model. In uh, one of the great things to do on a podcast, Paul, you've been nodding your head, which suggests you have a comment. <laughs> Were you going to say something about uh, innovations and ideas? Oh, no, just really reinforcing, I guess, what, what Tenon was saying and what we were talking about is that uh, that it's really good. You you need to you need to keep open the door for surprises um, uh, through that process and, and investing in technology development and uh, the generation of ideas and, and entrepreneurship more generally is a really good thing. Um, uh, all those things are going to be really important. Um, I, there is uncertainty there and uh, we do need to... You know, keep the keep the door open for those ideas. For the business people listening, uh, there's no settled ideas yet. Keep innovating. Keep looking for better ways of doing things. So the last uh, the last thing we should talk about before we go uh, is another important part of the economics of uh, of the future, and that's uh, CBAM, one of Tenant's favourite topics, the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, on the 15th of March this year, the European Council reached agreement on the carbon border adjustment mechanism, saying that um, the main objective of this environmental measure was to avoid carbon leakage. In other words, it was to try and balance out uh, the use of renewable energy uh, against the cheaper option of carbon energy production. I didn't explain that very well. I fumbled then. Tenor, pick it up. Uh, is the CBAM still going ahead or is the crisis in Europe put it on hold or where are we at? So it's been a bit of a roller coaster in the last uh, month or so for CBAM enthusiasts, uh, like tragics like me. Uh, quick explanation things, for our listeners, perhaps. Just so the carbon border adjustment is the concept of if you've got an economy like Europe that has uh, a formal carbon price on emitting carbon within um, within Europe, uh, they're going to impose that carbon price or an equivalent to it on imports of emissions-intensive products like steel uh, or aluminium uh, or basic chemicals so as to create a level playing field between uh, local producers and imports. Now, doing it is a lot more complicated than that, but that's that's really what it boils down to. And an energy crisis doesn't help it at all, I guess. Well, uh, so actually the, the CBAM has turned out to have really strong political support. There was a hairy moment there where uh, the CBAM proposal and a bunch of others got into the European Parliament for a vote and uh, the people who wanted to do an aggressive CBAM found themselves disagreeing with the people who wanted to do an extremely aggressive CBAM uh, and the numbers didn't didn't come together to pass anything. But what happened then was they all went away and negotiated in back rooms and a week later, pretty much, there was a deal between the centre-left and the centre-right parties uh, in the, the European Parliament and two weeks after that, the Parliament voted it through. So where things stand is that like Europe's complicated uh, the um, the Commission, which is like the bureaucracy of Europe, has got a position. The Parliament, the democratic 
uh, Europe-wide democratic bit has got a position and the European Council, which is all the national governments clubbing together, they've got a position too and now they've all got to get together in what are called trilogues and uh, work out the uh, how all those three positions are going to turn into one thing. So the, the, the will, though, to do CBAM is clearly there. Parliament's got like a more, um, more aggressive position where they want to cover a, a wider range of products from the start. They want to cover a wider range of emissions from the start. And this was a crucial uh, deal that was done between the centre-right and the centre-left. They want to have not just that impost on imports, they want to give a rebate on some exports um, so that European exporters of steel, for example, are not disadvantaged in global markets. So they're going to they're gonna have to work out the details of all that over the next couple of months. But at this point, I would say... It's uh, near certain that by the end of this year, Europe will have uh, full agreement. Uh, They'll have dotted the I's, crossed the T's, and they'll be into implementation of the CBAM. And the reporting obligation, not not payment, but just reporting data, will probably kick off uh, as intended sometime in 2023. Well, from an Australian business person's point of view, that would suggest that what Paul was mentioning before, the idea about a national policy about where we're going in in this arena is even more important if we have to um, be aware of a heavy-hitting or a really heavy-hitting carbon border adjustment mechanism. Well, especially as uh, one of the expansions of scope that the parliament um, agreed was to cover hydrogen. From the start, European so, Parliament or our Parliament, the European Parliament. So um, Australian hopes to uh, to export hydrogen to Europe. Uh, that you know, those hopes are given a substantial boost by uh, the war in Ukraine and uh, Europe's moves to get off Russian gas. Uh, but we're going to have to show our work on uh, what the uh, the emissions intensity of that hydrogen is, uh, and and that will be not just you know. Is it made with electricity, but uh, or, or is it made with um, uh, methane reformation with um, carbon capture and storage? But what was the uh, capture rate and the the demonstration of, of that being sustained? If it's blue hydrogen, and where did the electricity come from? Uh, if it's if it's um, electrolytic hydrogen, uh, we can. Uh, get ourselves together to tell a good story there, a, like a true story, uh, but we've got to do the work. It's complex from a from a business point of view, though, Paul. It's got to be broader than that. I look, it's very complex, and uh, you know, you can be overwhelmed. I think by all these things that seem to be almost conflict, uh, conflicting each other um, across the energy transition. But you know, as we always say, James, uh, you know. Uh, you, you concentrate on the things you can do yourself, um, uh, energy efficiency, uh, uh, you know, uh, looking at uh, your own energy generation, looking at other things that you might be able to do um, uh, to, to mitigate in the short term some of those issues and potentially build long-term strategies as well um, as a business owner. Yeah, if you're looking for Europe as a marketplace, you better have your, uh, your business in, in 
in uh, structured world, particularly in terms of heading towards net zero. Just to finish off, uh, I noticed that the US Supreme Court has been in the news a lot. Uh, one of the things they've done is restricted the use, the power of the EPA, I think is the summary of it. Will that affect us if we're trying to sell into uh, America or buy from America as we try and head towards our net zero businesses? I think uh, we've got a we've got a big stake in whether America is able to get itself together to do its part in um, global net zero. Uh, but the the more direct implications of of that decision for Australia, I think, are pretty minimal. Um, even in the US, uh, the specific plan that got uh, struck down uh, probably wasn't going to like the targets in that plan from the EPA for cleaning up the US power sector had already actually been met. Uh, so the the direct implications there are, are low, but it's hard to do stuff in the US and it's it's hard for any US uh, administration to uh, to deliver on commitments unless there's very broad bipartisan support, which on many issues there's not. Yeah, and I think all eyes will now be on uh, the midterms uh, later in the year, and what the uh, uh, what the composition of the House of Reps and the Senate will be in the U.S. Congress around uh, um, some of these actions, not just on the climate change, but the Supreme Court's had a very busy uh, a very busy couple of weeks um, uh, with a lot of uh, quite uh, uh, groundbreaking decisions. They've gone on holidays now, I believe. It's, they've they've uh, they've gone on a recess break, so we'll catch our breath a, a little bit. But yes, certainly, uh, America's worth looking at. Been a great conversation, guys. We've we've talked a lot about the economic model of of energy, which is not where I expected it to go. But it's been it's been well worth the, the chat. We've talked about a number of different energy sources. Um, good good spot to to land, I think. Um, have a good one. We'll catch next time uh, on What on Earth. See you soon. Thanks very much, James. Thanks, Janet.